0: Good morning. How you doing? That was kind of lame. Let's try that again. How you doing? Good morning. All right. My name is Joe. I'm, uh, as uh, Michael was saying, I was uh, recognized or commissioned last week as one of the college pastors here. We're, me and my co-partner Dave Schubert, are super excited about working with New Hope and um, specifically trying to connect with uh, both the college-age people that are already a part of this church. And also really reaching out to college-age people from all over this area. MSU, LCC, others who are maybe have joined the working force right out of high school. And so if we can be of any assistance to you, or if you know of others who you think, man, it'd be really great if they got connected, give them my email. It's joe at newhopehazlet.com. I would love to personally somehow connect with them and invite them into this community. We're calling this, this, uh, this ministry the Greenhouse Community of new hope and um, we're really excited about that. So pray with me and then we'll dive in. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. We are so thankful that we get to be here. Thankful that um, even just for the song that we just sang about uh, what Jesus has done for us. Wow, that is amazing. Just to to be reminded today of, um, of just the beauty of the cross, of the significance of the fact that you have bought us and that you have paid the highest price for us. The death of your son on the cross. And so we are just super excited that we get to be learners today. We pray that you would teach us. Help us to be, um, uh, just to have all the distractions in, in our lives. And you just would take them away and you'd help us to really listen clearly to the teaching of your word this morning. And we pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I heard a pastor uh, share a story about uh, Mother Teresa speaking at a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. This was several years ago. And um, if you don't know who Mother Teresa was, she was a huge advocate for the poor and the marginalized in Calcutta, Indi- uh, India. She was speaking on the sanctity of human life. As you can imagine, she was a huge proponent for life. And as she spoke, two of the most powerful leaders in the world stood on both sides of her. Um, President Clinton on one side and, and Vice President Gore on the other. Both of these guys are, were ad- outspoken advocates of abortion. And she said this, this is part of her speech. She said, I feel that the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it's war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent child, murder by the mother herself. She went on, she said, by abortion, the mother doesn't learn to love, but kills even her own child to solve her problems. And by abortion, the father's told that he doesn't have to take any responsibility at all for the child that he's brought into this world. That father is likely to put other women into the same trouble, so abortion just leads to more abortion. Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. That's why the greatest destroyer of love and peace today is abortion. And after she finished her speech, that entire audience rose to its feet in kind of a thunderous standing ovation. Now you have to imagine one of the most awkward moments that you might ever experience as a public speaker came right after that when Bill Clinton got up and and gave his address. And what he said as he began his speech was incredibly significant. This is what he said. He said, it's hard to argue with a life so well lived. And you and I would have to agree with that, right? It's, it's so hard for us to argue with, with someone who, who, who lived a life in such a way that it would, they just, their life just shouted something beautiful and wonderful. You might disagree with Mother Teresa's theology, but you can't disagree with how she humbly and sacrificially laid down her life for the least fortunate, for the, the most you know, outcast in the slums there in Calcutta. And today today we have a chance to look at a church in the first century that lived its life in such a way that the watching world around it didn't know what to do with it. The Apostle Paul said things about this church that he didn't say about many other churches that he wrote to there in the New Testament. Most of the churches Paul wrote to you, if you're familiar with the New Testament, he wrote to these churches to kind of correct either their doctrinal issues that they were kind of uh, maybe messed up in or their practice, the issues of practice where they weren't really following the the word of God. And so, or, or a lot of times he wrote to kind of correct both of those things. But this church in Thessalonica was different. They lived their lives in such a way that they actually were an example to other churches around them. People uh, around them, whether they were anti-Jesus or pro-Jesus, would have said the same thing about them that Bill Clinton said about Mother Teresa. They might be able to argue against worldview perspectives, but it would be really hard for them to argue against a life so well-lived. And so just as we begin this, uh, looking at this letter, I want to just point out four quick things about this, 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 this area, this, this area that um, Paul wrote to in Thessalonica. This, this city, it was an ancient city um, that still exists today. It's the second largest city in Greece today. It, it's gone through a number of name changes. Today it's called Thessaloniki. I, I don't actually know if that's how you say it, but that's how I'm going to say it. Um, back in the first century, it was mostly made up of Greek people, but it also had a decent-sized Roman population and a, a small minority of Jewish people. It had about 200,000 people in the city at that point. Today it has about 300,000, so it's not much bigger today. Thessalonica was also a second, was a, was a rough city to live in if you were a Christ follower. It was a, a, a huge party city. It would probably be like living in the dorms on campus at Michigan State. Um, it was a port city, and it had a lot of money. And as you can imagine, in a port city, there were a lot of sailors harbored in that area, and they partied like sailors. Okay, the third thing uh, is that Paul, you know, when you look at this letter, Paul basically gives us the table of contents right there in chapter one. So if you wanna know what the rest of the letter's about, read chapter one, he kinda lays it out for you. And then the last thing is Paul wrote to Christians. So um, it's really important to realize that he's writing to people who've already said, I wanna follow Jesus. They've already entered into this relationship with Christ. But if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, one, I'm super excited that you're here. But I think there's also something for you here as well. You can see how beautiful followers of Jesus are when they follow Jesus. All right, so let's just jump right in. If you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Paul says this, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so I don't know how you operate when you read the Bible, but when I read it, a lot of times I start, you know, you you start at the beginning of a letter, and you read the address, and I a lot of times just kind of gloss over it. I'm like, yeah, let's get on to the good stuff. But I think we would be wrong to do that in this letter, and probably in any of the letters, because that introduction is so important. Like, the words grace to you and peace would be super encouraging to this group of people as they were in the midst of a lot of opposition, I mean, those words, grace and peace, are extremely important to hear when you are surrounded by um, a world that's the opposite of grace and peace, right? And so that's how Paul begins and he goes on and he says this, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, and so that leads us to really our first key thought, and I've given you some notes that you can kind of follow along in. I actually have a, a fill-in-the-blank there, so that kind of gives you a little bit of challenge this morning. It kind of keeps you on your toes with me. Um, and the first key thought is this. A life well-lived prays. Now, when you hear that Paul is always praying for these people, do you kind of just like proverbially like roll your eyes? I mean, I, I really wonder if we were honest, like, when Paul says that stuff, do we just go, yeah, that's Paul. He's a professional Christian. Um, he's, uh, he, that was his job. He, he didn't have organic chemistry to deal with. He wasn't working a 60-hour-a-week job. He wasn't normal. What do you do when you read something like this in the Bible? Well, I would encourage you to take a moment and think about a couple of things. The first question I would have is, why does Paul pray? Well, he prays because in the short time uh, that he spent there in, in the city, he saw some crazy things. If you keep one finger on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and flip back to Acts 17, Paul had this crazy memory of his time there in Thessalonica. Some of the, the uh, unbelievers in that city really riled up about Paul and his, what he, and his buddies and what they were doing there in that city. And they went in and they were going to do something really harmful to them. And so they went to the place where Paul and Timothy and Silas were staying. It was with this dude named Jason. It was in his house. He was hosting them. And Paul and and his buddies aren't there. So what they do is they take Jason and they rip him out of the house and they bring him to the authorities. And listen to what their enemies, uh, these people of Thessalonica said about them. They didn't point out their hypocrisy or their duplicity or their double-minded living. None of that. They held two things against them. The first thing they said is these Christians were turning the world upside down. And then the second thing is they were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. That was what made them so irate. I mean, can you imagine? That was their beef with these early followers of Jesus. Hey, you're your, your, your life is, is causing a ruckus because you no longer participate in the wild living and the licentiousness that we love. You're in Rome, but you don't do as the Romans do. And it bothers us. You love the unlovable. You, you care for the orphan and the widow. You, you, you're, a husband. you're faithful to one wife or one husband. You speak honorably about others. You You bow out of conversations that aren't profitable. You're a follower of Jesus, and it shows in your outer life. And we Thessalonians don't like it. So Paul knows that his friends and his spiritual family are under this opposition. And later in the letter, he even actually communicates that he's concerned that some of these new Christians, some of these people who have just recently come to faith in Christ may go ahead and throw the towel in because of this opposition that they're experiencing. And so he does the only thing that he can do from a distance, and it's probably the most important thing he can do. He prays constantly for these people. Now, you don't see this in the text, but you gotta remember that Paul was in this city for a period of time, so he knows people by name. And he knows probably exactly the types of things that are going on in in their life, so he can pray very specifically for them. Now again, a lot of us think, hey, that's Paul. That's that's how he rolls. But Paul makes it clear in this letter that praying without ceasing isn't an optional pursuit for someone who is a follower of Jesus. He said that unceasing prayer is actually God's will for your life. Now I don't know about you, but I have lots of people that are always asking me, like trying to figure out, what's God's will for my life? And, And you know, I... I think it's crazy, but if you read to the end of this letter, he just lays it out in black and white. You no longer have to wonder, it's right here, it's rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so God's will for you and me is that we pray constantly for ourselves. We pray for our own issues and and the things that we're wrestling with and struggling with in our world. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people that are in this church family, um, maybe others that are in your small group with you, or even other Christians that are outside of this this family. You you pray for the people around you who have yet to put their faith in Christ, your neighbors, your co-workers, others who are far from God. You pray that God would, would draw them to Jesus and he would use you and others to somehow make the gospel known to them. And you'd be praying for your, your children, that they would grow in wisdom and that they would love God with all their heart. And you pray for uh, your pastors and your spiritual leaders in any and every situation Where to pray. I think a lot of times we don't get Paul because our faith is a Sunday morning faith. It isn't a faith that has infiltrated every area of our life it isn't a faith that's on mission with god where our lives are really aligned and moving in the same direction as jesus we don't get this because we don't have a ministry like paul has and and just to be clear like we don't have to have a ministry just like paul but we've all been called to be in ministry Ministry isn't just Gary and me and Mark and the other pastors here. Ministry is all y'all. Every person who names Jesus as Savior and Lord is is called into ministry. And the first ministry you have is to your family. That's your most important ministry. And then beyond that, you have the ministry of just ministering to the people you, you live and you work with day in and day out. If you don't have something of that nature, It's really possible that you won't get what Paul's saying here. Paul goes on to say this. He says, part of his prayer was remembering. Remembering the lives of those he had met and led to Jesus. And it helped them grow up in the faith. Verse 3, we read this. I'm kind of picking up mid-sentence here. He says, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and father well let's look at what paul isn't saying here first paul isn't saying that somehow our favor with god is something that we earn you know the death burial and resurrection of jesus is the foundation for our faith faith in jesus is what makes someone righteous to stand before a holy god it's faith alone in jesus And just so we have complete clarity about this matter, a Christian is someone who at some point in their life comes empty-handed to Jesus and and asks him to pay for their sin through his death on the cross. We sing a hymn here, um, and I love one of the uh, sentences in the hymn, and I may even just kind of make it my own words, but it, it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. And so that's what Paul is, isn't saying. He's not saying that somehow our, our favor with God is earned. But what he is saying here is that true faith in Christ shows a life well lived as a result of that faith in Jesus. In other words, true faith works. True faith loves. True faith has a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, it's real important that we get this right. The gospel is the foundation for salvation salvation. And spiritual growth. It's what kickstarts our faith and it's what fuels our spiritual maturity. Paul goes on. And you'll see again that this is kind of like one long sentence. If Paul had written this in my high school English class, he would have gotten graded down. This is a run-on sentence, but it's a good one. Verse four. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that's our second key this morning is gospel transformation is central to living a life well lived. Now in that, that sentence there, Paul uses a word that kind of has created a lot of controversy over the years for people. It's the word chosen or choice. And we could talk a long time about that, but I'm going to let Mark get to that when he gets to Romans chapter 9, which I don't know if that'll be this year or next. (laughs) And the reason we're not going to talk about that is because really the sense of where Paul is going in this passage is that we know someone is chosen based on a transformed life. And so how do I know if someone's chosen? How do I know if you've been chosen by God or if you are one of God's elect? Well, the reality is I don't know. God has given us certain responsibilities. One of my responsibilities is to plant and to water. Another one of my responsibilities as a Christian is to speak the truth in love, to kind of come alongside um, uh, the other brothers and sisters and help uh, each of us kind of grow up in the faith. And and, and I need that from you as well. It's not just a one-way street. It's a a two-way street. It's mutual encouragement. And so you and I are, are to be faithful as ambassadors of Jesus. We're representatives of the king. And so our responsibility is to really love and serve people and, and help build a bridge into, the, into their world to help get the gospel message to them. That's what it is for the unbelieving world. And then for the believing world, we're to come alongside and encourage and, and help in and, and any way we can. We're messengers. And ultimately, God is the one who transforms the human heart and lead someone to both be reborn spiritually, but also then to, to grow in maturity. I met a guy a number of years ago at a party we threw. His, uh, he's one of those guys that, you know, I just connected with immediately. I don't know if you ever had anybody like that in your world where you just hit it off right away and you kind of become really good friends. This guy's name was Jerry. And we would talk about spiritual things all the time. We'd go out and grab coffee and we talk about Jesus and, and all kinds of things related to the Bible. And Jerry referred to himself as a Christian. The tension in our conversations uh, only started to, co- uh, uh, to come when we talked about sexual purity. And I don't know how we even got around to the conversation, but reality is I work with college students. This is a pretty normal topic that we talk about. And so like I said, I couldn't remember like, even how we got into it, but Jerry was convinced that it was fine to have sex with someone you weren't married to. And so we looked at all the places in the New Testament that taught about sex, and even even after he saw the clear teaching of the Word of God, he still didn't budge. There wasn't a softness in his heart toward God's Word, a willingness to yield to it as as the authority over his life. And after much thought and prayer, I, I met with him at Espresso Royale, and I gently but firmly challenged him. My challenge to him was that if he stiff-armed God's word, in other words, if he kept God's word at a distance, if there wasn't a a softness, a a movement where he allowed the word of God to really speak into his life, I just challenged him that he needed to examine himself to really see if he had a true faith. And then our paths just kind of parted ways. He went and did a summer um, study abroad down in Brazil, and I did... I went away for our summer mission stuff that we're going to actually leaving for this next week out in, in upstate New York. And honestly, I thought maybe that could potentially be the end of our friendship. Fast forward three months uh, ahead to the beginning of the fall semester, I was l- sitting on my couch when my phone rang. And um, I picked it up and it was, it was Jerry. Now, I don't know um, if you know what I'm talking about, but we used to use a phone to communicate to other people in different places. And sometimes we'd even hold, like, our hand like this. And I think if you do that today, people, like, don't have any idea what you're talking about. So, but we, Jerry started to just tell me this crazy story about how his life just unraveled while he was in Brazil. While he was doing his study abroad, he found out that his fiance was having sex behind his back with all of his Brazilian friends. And when he found out, it just crushed him. I mean, it just devastated him. He was just torn up. And so he's all alone in Brazil. He's walking on the beach, and God puts two Christian men in his life who share the gospel with him. And Jerry experiences a radical turning to Jesus Christ. And what we saw in the years to follow was exactly what this verse is talking about. The gospel came with power in Jerry's life. That word power in the Greek is the word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. It means power, power strength and might the sense of this word is possession of controlling influence it's like what happens there is the gospel comes in and just blows up your world and takes possession of your life bringing its influencing and really influencing everything you do and so what God did that summer is he he blew up Jerry's world He reordered everything. Jerry's mission and focus in his life changed. His moral trajectory changed. It shifted to where he actually had a softening toward God's word. And to this day, he's a changed person. The gospel came in power, but also, I'm sorry, came in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I didn't know if Jerry was chosen before that summer, but I knew I knew it at the end of the summer because of a transformed life. His repentance led him to a life that moved him toward Jesus. And today he lives his life in such a way that the watching world around him would say it's hard to argue with a life so well lived. Okay, moving on here. Verses 6 and 7. Paul continues. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, Having received the word in much tribulation, the ESV says affliction. I just like how you can kind of get a nuance there as you look at a different translation. But anyway, we're talking about pretty significant issues here. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And this is our third key that we're looking at this morning. A life well lived imitates Jesus and our spiritual leaders in our affliction. Now, back in the day, it was assumed that the only teacher worth a moment's attention were those who taught with their lives as well as with their words. And really, the same is true today, isn't it? I mean, people are watching us all the time. Your kids are watching you. Your friends are watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. Your unbelieving family are watching you. Your believing friends are watching you. You don't think they're watching, but they are. And now with all of the social media interaction we have, they're watching us even when we're not around them. They're reading what you're putting on Facebook and the, the tone of how you're saying it. And they're, they're looking at the, the, the photos you're, you're you're putting on Instagram. And it makes you wonder, like, what is your life communicating to the watching world around you? Let's be even a, m- a little more pointed here. How are you reacting when your world and your life and your reality doesn't go the way that you wanted it to? Or even more, how do you react to opposition and adversity and trials? Or even more, affliction or tribulation? It seems like my whole life, I can, as I look back over the last couple of weeks, it seems like it's just been one trial after another. In fact, I was talking to my mechanic friend yesterday, and he said, sounds like life's winning. I was like, yeah, kind of. And see, what, what hurts me as I think about this and where the sting happens in my life, where it feels like there's a little bit of salt in the wounds for me is, is that like, I don't always respond all that great when I'm going through trials and adversity. And, and, and that's just, you know, when I think about um, what this church was experiencing, I'm in a different category. I'm talking about, I got a nail in the sidewall of my tire. Big deal. It means that, you know, it's going to cost me a couple hundred bucks and, and just, it's just inconvenience mostly. And that's what I look at as trials, inconvenience. But the adversity that Paul is talking about here isn't getting a nail on the sidewall of your tire or getting cut off in traffic. It's not someone like maybe being passive-aggressive with you on, on Facebook. If you go back to what, what Luke was talking about in Acts there, the stuff that, that was going on in this city in this time was intense. These people had more than just a little bit of sand in their shorts. They, they were irate. They, they wanted to hurt someone. This is more than someone just giving you the finger. And it didn't end after this situation there where they got a hold of that guy Jason and pulled him out. I mean, Paul went to the next city, Berea, a 45-mile hike one way. Think up—that's several days of hiking. And these, the, this, this group of people from Thessalonica followed them just so they could continue their opposition. This is a pe- this is a group of people that is really angry. Now we might not experience adversity like that in our everyday life, but the stuff that we're experiencing is, I would say, is more intense than it was. 20 years ago more often than not the adversity that we'll experience if we're living out our faith in a vibrant way is a humiliating jab maybe somebody just kind of again passive aggressively says something and it kind of just stings or maybe we don't get invited to a co-workers party maybe there's just a little bit of ostracism that we experience because of our faith in christ Or maybe as we're we're pursuing a promotion, our supervisor overlooks us because, well, just he or she is not all that excited about Christians. Let me ask you this. How do you respond when others mistreat you or misunderstand you or discount you or overlook you or criticize you because of your faith in Jesus? Just to be clear, we're not talking about someone not getting a promotion because you're a bad employee We're not talking about not getting invited to a party because you're kind of a jerk. Jerks for Jesus does not count as persecution. What we're talking about here is someone who is a great worker. They honor God in the workplace and yet someone overlooks you because you're a follower of Christ. Those are defining moments, aren't they? Those are moments when who we are is really revealed. I would say they're even more than defining moments, they're refining moments. And I've had a situation going on in my life for the past two years that it it still just kind of baffles and confuses me. A friend of mine who, I still have a a, a way of thinking about him that's really positive. But some things kind of went sideways and, and I've done everything I can to try to make that right. And, and what's gone on is he's just begun to throw my character under the bus with anybody who will listen to him. A super uh, challenging um, situation for me. Last, last fall, he cussed me out three times. I've never been cussed out in my life until the, la- in the last year, year and a half. And some of the words that he's used have been really painful because it, he, he talks about me as a sham. Um, and so he's looking at my faith. And I think the greatest amount of pain for me comes from the fact that my goal with this person was to lead him to Jesus. I wanted to be a good friend to him. I I spent lots of time with him, and I spent lots of time praying for him, and I still do pray for him. But it was in the middle of getting reamed out by this guy that this passage and another one came to my mind. And that's one of the reasons why I encourage you, spend time reading the word because God will use the word to minister to you as you're just going through life and experiencing some of these challenges. Go back to the text here. Paul says this, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so see, Paul, what it was, he was doing was he, was he encouraged these believers to imitate him and Silas and Timothy and Jesus as they went through um, the tribulation and the, and the affliction. Do you remember what Jesus did when he was in the midst of getting ripped to shreds? Go back to Isaiah. Isaiah, as he predicted uh, the Messiah would come, he said this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He, yet he did not open his mouth. He, like a lamb le- led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus' example to us as he was going through affliction was he remained silent. Paul, as he was being persecuted, you remember the point in Acts where he's beaten and thrown into prison? Later that evening, it says that he was worshiping. And so that was his example. So we have one situation where Jesus remained silent. We have another example where Paul is worshiping. And so based on the encouragement that I receive from the word, I remained silent even as I was being blasted. And then it's not always a black and white situation either. There's a time to remain silent and there's a time to speak. And wisdom is necessary to know when to do what. The Proverbs teach us this as well. They say, don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him. And then they say, answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he may not be wise in his own eyes. And so wisdom is necessary to know when to say something and when to remain silent. And it's not only wisdom, but we also need to depend on God as he's going to lead us through those situations. I think one of the coolest things that we see in the New Testament is, is that God is with us always, but especially he's with us when we're going through this persecution and affliction. Do you remember the place in the Gospels where Jesus is like, hey, when they throw you and when they hand you over, uh, don't worry about how or what you're to say, for it is, it'll be given to you in that hour what you're to say. For it's not you who speak, but it's going to be the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. In those moments, God is going to give us the words to speak. And not only is he going to give us the words, but he's also going to give us the joy, just like these men and women had. And the result of imitating Jesus and these leaders, it was profound. It says that the Thessalonian believers became an example to all of these other churches in Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond that. We're talking about a region that's several hundred miles. In, in our church culture today, in the United States, we elevate people based on their preaching ability. But if you were to go back to Macedonia and Achaia, your example was how you responded in the midst of affliction. That's how they became someone who others wanted to follow because it's easy to preach a good message it's so much harder to live out that message in the midst of opposition but know that when you're being afflicted your message is being heard loud and clear and that's when someone whether they say it out loud or they think it is going to move in the direction of saying it's hard to argue with a life so well-lived. All right, Paul finishes this section of his letter with this last sentence. Verse nine, he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. When I read that, I just think that is amazing. And that's really the final key that we have here this morning repentance is essential to living a life well lived. These other churches in Macedonia and Achaea and and everywhere had heard about what God had done among these people in Thessalonica. There was such a powerful conversion of this group of people that they were known by all these other churches for their repentance. So essentially, repentance means to turn. It means you turn away from something and you're turning toward, toward Jesus. And these people had turned away from idols, which are false dead gods, and they turned to the living and true God, Jesus. And most of the time when you and I think of idols, we, we think of little figures carved by human hands and a lot of times they're involved with ancestral worship and those definitely are idols but idol worship can be way more comprehensive than that idolatry in its basic form is worship of anything or anyone other than jesus so we can make an idol out of anything in fact i love how tim keller talks about this he says that the human heart is an idol factory in other words we just produce idols Just naturally, that's just how we function in our natural fallen state. He goes on to define idolatry like this. He says, what is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, what only God can give you. All of us have the propensity to be idol producing factories because we were created as worshipers that's how we were designed there's no other way around it if we don't worship the living and true god we're gonna worship false and dead gods i heard a guy say this years and years and years ago and i can never get it out of my mind it just stuck in my craw it's it's this this phrase is whatever captures your heart will bend your knees. Our hearts are super sticky. They they get stuck to all kinds of things. And when they get stuck to something, that's what we end up worshiping. And that sounds okay in one sense maybe, but what really happens when we worship idols is that idols destroy us. They they disappoint us. They disillusion us. they, They enslave us. And ultimately they leave us dissatisfied. Dissatisfied. And so, what caught the attention of this entire region is the fact that these people had turned away from idol worship. They said, This isn't the true and living God. This isn't going to bring us life. And after we're done worshiping this thing or, or whatever, we'll still be thirsty. And so, they just renounced them. And that repentance caught the attention of everyone. I think repentance in this verse is really talking about the initial turning that happens when someone becomes a Christian. And so if you're here this morning and you recognize that you have put your faith in someone or something other than Jesus, or if somehow you're looking for life somewhere other than in Jesus Christ, this morning could be the chance for you to turn from whatever that thing is to the true source of life. Jesus refers to himself as living water, a kind of life-giving drink that doesn't just satisfy temporarily, but is again the true source of life. Now we go to idols because they do something for us. The problem is we have to keep going back because they never satisfy us as fully as Jesus will. Idolatry in this passage is obviously talking about probably idolatry outside of the church, but I think we wrestle with idolatry in the church just as much as people outside the church do. And so I think when we read this verse, those of us who are already Christ followers, we have to wrestle with um, this ourselves. We have to examine ourselves. Is there something or someone who has subtly taken the place of Jesus in our lives? Now, idols... Can be good things from God, gifts from God that replace God in our hearts. A lot of times when I'm worshiping, on a I did this this morning too. I, I sometimes have my hands in my pocket, and I, I keep a lot of stuff in my front pockets. I I got my cell phone in my pocket, and I got like a George Costanza wallet. I don't know if you ever watch Seinfeld, but it's a it's it, actually that's cleaned out too, so it's not really that big. And then I've got my car keys as well. And so really, when I think about this, my phone represents relationships. That can be an idol in our our world, for sure. Uh, My wallet represents money or or power, or maybe it even represents security. And my car keys uh, represent possessions. And so they could be good gifts, relationships, good gifts from God. But they could replace God in our lives. And so you can see, idols can be very subtle, I mean, some other ones to think about are maybe your job can be an idol. Now, most people think, well, how can my job be an idol? I can't stand it. But um, it could be. A career could be uh, an idol. Um, A a hobby. A child. Your spouse. uh, An ambition. Watching college basketball. Thank goodness we didn't have this message during March, right? Um, Fill in the blank. Anything other than Jesus. The litmus test for whether something could be an idol or not in your life is you look at your finances, you look at your calendar, you look at your heart. Often where we invest our time, treasure, and talents, that is where our hearts are as well. Now, there's lots of things that are, that are idols in our culture today, and, and you and I could argue and probably we would all be right. Right? you know, uh, about which ones maybe are some of the most challenging or the ones that we might deal with the most. But I would have to say, in my mind, sex and sexual identity probably are right up there at the top. Nothing new under the sun either. And like Solomon talked about that in Ecclesiastes. The same issues that the church struggled with in Thessalonica are the same things that the church struggles with today. The church in Thessalonica wrestled with sexual immorality That's why Paul told these young believers another God's will for your life statement later in 1 Thessalonians. He said this, for it's the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God for your life, that you would abstain from sexual stuff. And I think the way that we handle our sex and our sexuality is is huge in our culture today it's probably what would cause us to stand out as a really bright light in the midst of a really dark world. The word there in the Greek for sexual immorality is the word pornea, which is where we get our word pornography from. And it really refers to anything that is sexual in nature outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage covenant relationship for life. And so I uh, was feeling a little insecure sharing this last night, and I had a woman come up, and she gave me encouragement, and, and I thought, you know, in my mind, this is only an issue that young people wrestle with. And she was like, no way. This is an issue that all people wrestle with. So I was encouraged to kind of lean in a little bit more and give you some challenge here, so I'm going to do that. I've got just three areas that I just want to kind of ask a question and see where that goes. The first one is, do you spend the night at a boyfriend or a girlfriend's house? You know, that sleepover thing is really popular in our world, but it's really confusing to the watching, unbelieving world out there because when people have sleepovers out there, there's more that's going on than just a sleepover. And if that's happening, I would encourage you to repent. The second thing is, are you engaging in material on the internet uh, or on social media that is sexual in nature outside of a one-man, one-woman marriage relationship for life? If you are, again, I would encourage you to turn from that. And the last thing I wanted to ask you is, are you actively involved in a physical or an emotional relationship with someone that isn't your spouse? If you would have the the um, humility to answer yes to those and just to be honest with yourself. We would love to help you. I mean, uh, I, I can't speak for the other pastors, but I'm not perfect. And I know that I wrestle with all kinds of things myself. And there is nothing more powerful than bringing that stuff into the light. It's scary. There's shame involved in it. But I will tell you that you will feel a freedom that you've never experienced before by doing that. And so... The goal isn't to keep the stuff hidden, but it's to bring it into the light, to repent of it, and to turn away from it. And it's God's will that we abstain from this stuff for a reason. God's not a killjoy. His purpose and desire for us is that we would have the greatest level of intimacy with one person for the rest of our lives that marriage picture is a gospel picture. So Paul ends this passage by saying that these people turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And then he says this, and to wait for his son from heaven. I wish I had more time to talk about that. But just imagine, they turned away from idols and now they're waiting for Jesus to return. He says he, he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us, from the wrath to come. That's awesome. So if we were to pull all this together, it really is hard to argue with a life so well lived. And the goal isn't just to white knuckle it so that you can pull off this life well lived. The goal is to dwell on how good God has been to us because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has forgiven us forever. And so as we think about that stuff, as we dwell on it, as we meditate on it, we begin to move in the direction of becoming more like Christ. And, and the watching world as they see our lives, we'll have an opportunity to point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful today for the gospel. I know that I need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel as many times as I can be. Lord, I'm challenged in my own life by your word. And so I pray for me, God, that you would help me to turn away from the things that oftentimes are idols in my world and to just be quicker to recognize the fact that these things are never gonna satisfy me and ultimately I will only be disillusioned by them. I'll be dissatisfied and ultimately, I need Jesus. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the church in Thessalonica. Thanks for the work that you did in their, in their lives back 2,000 plus years ago and how that is an encouragement to us today. Your word is timeless. And we just thank you for Jesus again. Amen.